from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by West Virginia University, a land-grant, space-grant, R1 research institution. Learn more at wvu.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. On the legislature today, updates on energy and environment legislation that we've been following. And later we'll meet some students who visited the Capitol today to page for their local lawmakers. But first, Dave Mistich and Emily Allen join me for a brief news update. Welcome to the two of you. Thanks. Um, Dave, let's start in the Senate today. Sure. Committee substitute for Senate Bill 285, eliminating, eliminating West Virginia Greyhound Breeding Development Fund. This pitted members of the president's leadership team against the president himself who sponsored the bill. Tell us what happened today. Right, so just to give you some uh, background on this bill, um, about $17 million goes to this uh, breeding fund for breeders and handlers. Uh, that's at the Wheeling Island uh, Casino and Hotel, Hotel and Casino in Wheeling, um, and of course the Mardi Gras Casino in Cross Lanes here in Kanawha County. And so basically the, the whole idea would not have made Greyhound racing illegal. It would have just um, taken the $17 million and put it to other things that, that, that could be funded through the excess lottery fund. So there were a lot of conversations on the floor today. Senate President Mitch Carmichael, this is a bill that he's been pushing. We'll take a listen right now to some of his comments in support of eliminating this Greyhound Breeders Fund. I wanted to rise and talk about this bill just for a moment. It's a bill that I've sponsored. Uh, I've sponsored it in the past. We've actually passed it uh, prior uh, to this today, but I can, you know, sort of see where this is gonna go. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about it because whether we do it this year or next year or the year after, it's gonna happen. Greyhound racing is ending all across America. There's only a few handful of states that even allow it legally to occur, and we're the only state in America that subsidizes the, the activity. And there's lots of reasons uh, that people across America are turning away from this sport. And the Senate president was the only one who spoke on behalf of this uh, bill. That's right. And, and the, the, the final vote was uh, 11 in support of the bill, 23 against it, uh, meaning the bill is rejected and that this fund will continue. So, um, you know, as you heard in, in his comments there, he, he was well aware of, of the way that this vote was going to go. I think, obviously, that being the Senate president, he was, had, had counted votes in favor of the bill and, and those against. He, he saw the writing on the wall with it. Um, you know, those that spoke against it say that, you know, this would have doomed the industry um, and that, that they need this to keep going. Um, there's an understanding that the, the live handle has been gone down, uh, been going down, and that, that's basically the, the money that's collected inside the track there. But the overall uh, take uh, for these tracks is going up. So uh, we'll hear some arguments uh, made on the floor today by Senator William Elenfeld of Ohio County. He's a Democrat. Here's what he had to say um, in, in opposition to Senate Bill 285. There aren't many industries in our state that we control uh, that is ours alone. And we're getting close to being the only game in town when it comes to this industry. The handle is up. 
there's $400 million in dog bedding money available to capture from the state of Florida. Instead of kicking this to the curb, we ought to embrace it. We ought to modernize it. We ought to make it even better and allow even more people to send money to West Virginia. And as a legislature, we need to do a better job of capturing more of that revenue because as we've all said, we've all said we need to diversify our economy. And here we are with an opportunity to take an industry and make it even better and continue that diversification process. We'd be fools to let this industry go when there's such a great opportunity on the horizon. And as you heard in the, the, Senator, uh, the comments from Senator Elenfeld there, there's, there's only three states, I believe it's Alabama, Iowa, and Texas that actually have these tracks. Uh, he mentioned Florida, that's uh, after next year, they, they won't be racing there. So, um, you know, the argument is that it's, it's going away in other states and that West Virginia has an opportunity to collect money in these states that have, that have gone away from Greyhound racing. So in the end, the bill died. Um, in the past, this, this has passed the legislature and been vetoed, but uh, not even going to get to the governor this year. So. Okay, and I had mentioned at the, at the beginning of this that it pitted uh, leadership uh, against the Senate president. You, had, you, you spoke with Senator Maroney here the other night, and, right. and then also minority, or excuse me, majority leader uh, uh, Weld right. also spoke uh, against, the, against bill. the bill. It gets right. a little confusing there. Right. Thank you, Dave. Um, Emily, House Bill uh, 4543, um, that was a really big one, insurance coverage for diabetes. Tell us about that one in the House today. Yep, so specifically this bill uh, would establish a cap on copays for West Virginians with um, insurance, so it doesn't cover um, underinsured or uninsured mm -hmm. people. Um, but it, it sets a cap at $25, and that's mostly because for of insulin. The, for insulin. Yep, all kinds of insulin, any amount per month. Um, and, and that bill was largely introduced in response to these kind of um, astronomically rising insulin costs. And you're actually about to hear that same uh, quote in this next couple of clips. Um, it, the, the bill passed almost uh, unanimously with four people voting against it. Here are some remarks from a few of the... And who, who's speaking? Who, for our radio audience, who, who are we going to hear? Yep, we're going to hear from Delegate John Schott, a Republican out of Mercer County. He chairs the Judiciary Committee, which passed it last. And then uh, Delegate Barbara Fleischauer from Monongalia County. Uh, she's been a huge proponent for the bill. The cost of insulin has increased astronomically, especially the cost of insurance co-payments, which can exceed $600 per month in many cases. Similar increases in the cost of diabetic equipment and supplies and insurance premiums has resulted in out-of-pocket costs for many West Virginians that have diabetes in excess of $1,000 per month. As a result, national reports indicate that as many as one in four type one diabetics underuse or ration their insulin due to these increased costs. Rationing insulin has resulted in nerve damage, diabetic comas, amputation, kidney damage, and even death. These people are paying $500 a month, many of them. And they, ha they take more than one kind of insulin and they need it to survive. And um, it's so weird because insulin was discovered almost exactly, I mean, we're just under, a year or two under it, 100 years ago. And the persons who invented it gave the patent to the University of Toronto for a dollar, and they said that nobody should profit off of a life-saving medication. So we are, 
at a wonderful point. And what happened? So the bill passed uh, 94 or 93 to 4 with three people absent or not voting. Um, it now moves on to the Senate for consideration. Okay, thanks, Emily. And Dave, we had a public hearing this morning on Senate Concurrent Resolution 4. You've reported on that before. Um, this is calling for a convention of states to consider congressional term limits. Um, remind us about this issue before we hear a little bit from that uh, uh, hearing this morning. Right. So uh, we'll throw to a graphic here for those in, on uh, listening on radio. The the TV audience can see this. Uh, but those on radio, um, it deals with Article Five of the U.S. Constitution. There's two routes to amending the the, the, the Constitution of the United States. Step one would be the proposal uh, offering that amendment. Um, that would require a two-thirds majority in the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate, uh, or two-thirds of states at a convention. Um, so, you know, if we get two-thirds of states that call for this convention, we've got the proposed, uh, you know, uh, the proposed amendment, uh, and then of course the, the, that amendment would have to be ratified, which would take three-fourths of state legislatures or three-fourths of states at a convention. Now, so this Article Five, the debate that happened over the Senate, excuse me, earlier this session, was all about the unknowns of what Article Five says and whether or not, you know, if if they. Would, would have a uh, uh, Article 5 convention of states uh, if just what was on the call for that convention would, would be allowed to be amended or if it could be opened up to other things. And, and, and those that expressed concerns of these unknowns said that it could turn into a runaway convention. The Constitution can come out looking completely different. Rights could be possibly stripped away from certain groups of people. Um, but this public hearing essentially reflected some of the conversation that was had in the Senate before. Okay, and we will uh, go to that clip. We're gonna hear first from Joseph Cohen, Executive Director of the ACLU of West Virginia. He um, spoke in opposition, and then he's, he's followed by Shauna Shambly, uh, Legislative Director of the National U.S. Term Limits Group. To be honest, I'm not really worried <clears throat> about what Article 5 says. I'm worried about what it doesn't say. Nowhere in Article 5 does it say whether that convention calls must be identical or whether they need to cover the same topic or any topic at all. How will we even know if two-thirds of the states have called for a convention? We won't know that from Article 5. Nowhere in Article 5 does it say whether the convention would be bound to the topic or topics, if any, that may be laid out in a convention call. What happens if a call predicated on exploring term limits leads to proposed amendment to end term limits for the President of the United States? What if it leads to uh, proposed amendments to overturn Roe versus Wade, or to create an express right of privacy, or to repeal the Second Amendment, or to clarify that the right to bear arms is a personal right, or to end the Electoral College, or to, end, or to repeal the 17th Amendment, ending the direct election of senators? If there are no rules to govern Article 5, then under what rules do, con does Congress operate under this very same sentence of our Constitution as they have introduced 1,200-plus amendment proposals to our Constitution throughout the course of our history? I would like to point out here in this 100th year of women's suffrage, as a woman voter myself, we do have a precedent to follow of conventions. Women's suffrage, the 19th Amendment to our U.S. Constitution, was ratified by the second mode allowed by Congress in Article 5 by state conventions. They didn't run away 
They didn't go outside of their scope. And I get to stand here before you today as a voter because of that. There were only nine speakers at this morning's uh, hearing. Those organizations were um, represented by speakers, the, the West Virginia Center for Budget and Policy, the League of Women Voters, the ACLU of West Virginia, the American Civil Liberties Union of West Virginia, the West Virginia Chapter of the National Association of Social Workers, and the West Virginia Citizens Action Group all spent or all uh, spoke against uh, this resolution. There was uh, an organization represented by speakers, two, two representatives from uh, the West Virginia chapter of the, U the U.S. Term Limits Group and the national chapter of the U.S. Term Limits Group. They both uh, supported that resolution. And uh, House Judiciary Chair John Schott said that that uh, resolution should be taken up in his committee by the end of next week. Joining Emily and me now is Brittany Patterson, West Virginia Public Broadcasting Energy and Environment Reporter. Thank you so much, Brittany, for being here. There have been um, quite a few energy and environment uh, related bills to follow this session too are really gaining traction. Let's start with um, Senate Bill 583, the big solar expansion bill. Yeah, so this bill would create a utility solar program here in West Virginia. It would be 400 megawatts of solar, 200 could be built by each of the two big utilities in the state, First Energy and American Electric Power, in 50 megawatt increments. And this bill was asked for by the State Department of Commerce. Commerce officials testified that um, when they try to learn new businesses into West Virginia, the first or second question they get, especially from some larger companies, is do we have access to renewable energy. And here in West Virginia, about more than 90% of the power that is generated here is coal-fired. And so that was a big hurdle to getting new businesses. And so um, this bill has passed out of the Senate. It has now been referred over to the House, House Judiciary Committee. And I spoke with Judiciary Chairman John Schott today, and he said that he does intend to bring this bill up in committee early next week. Now, there were, there were two bills originally, one from the House, one from the Senate, and then I, was there an agreement to just drop one and run with the other? Yeah, there were two versions of this bill, and the House bill went through House Energy originally, got a couple hearings in that committee, and it was quite contentious. Um, we had multiple hours of debate, and at that point, the committee chairman told me he just decided to sort of let the bill drop so they could get to other things because the Senate bill really started to move. And, and so what, what was it contentious over? What, were, what, was, the, what was the rub in that, in that bill? Yeah, I mean, to put it in a little bit of context, West Virginia is pretty low on the totem pole when it comes to solar. So we're ranked about 48th in the nation when it comes to installed solar capacity. We don't have a renewable portfolio standard. It's not legal to allow third-party solar installation. A bill to do that is actually sort of stuck and hasn't been put on a committee agenda. Um, so this is a really big deal. And so those who are supportive of the coal industry started to see it a little bit as, as a threat to, to that generating power. And we'll continue to follow it. Thanks, uh, Brittany. Emily, House Bill 4953 is designed to help those distressed water systems. Tell us about that. 
distressed and failing, and I'll get to that in a second. This bill deals with the Public Service Commission, um, which regulates a lot of utilities in West Virginia, but most notably, most publicized recently has been water systems. So the bill would give the Public Service Commission the authority, the statutory authority, to when a water system is either distressed, help improve it, or if it's failing, um, to have another nearby, more capable utility come in and take over. We actually talked to uh, Chairwoman Charlotte Lane, who's been around the Capitol recently, advocating for this bill and others. Uh, here's some bits of what she had to say. It's a long-term solution that will get, and this bill will give us the planning tools to work with these utilities to come up with a long-term solution as to how the public can be better served by these smaller systems. And if that means being taken over by another system, then that will be in the best, we will determine whether that's in the best interest of the public. And then we will be able to order that one system to take over another system. And the bill gives us the options in dealing with rates it also creates a fund that can be used to help these failing systems make the infrastructure improvements that are necessary. So um, one kind of concern that we haven't heard a bit about, though, is um, the Public Service Commission would be having another utility take over one. And that first utility is going to obviously have to spend some money on that. So this bill mentioned some kind of cost uh, related mechanisms to help make up for that cost um, for nonprofits who take over a water system. They mentioned grants. Um, for for-profits organizations, they mentioned below market uh, loans, which is something they don't typically do for for-profit stuff in this area. They also uh, mentioned, you know, it'd be up to the Public Service Commission's discretion, of course, um, but this could lead to raised or altered rates for people, um, you know, that are losing their original water utility to another one. And I should also say wastewater utility. This bill also applies to them, too. Okay, Brittany, tell us a little bit more about these distressed water systems. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that people here in West Virginia are pretty familiar about. But to give you some context, last fall there was a report released by three environmental groups that looked at federal data specifically about drinking water violations. And they found that more than half of West Virginia's counties rank among the worst in the nation. Um, about a million people here in West Virginia drank water that was from a system out of compliance with this Safe Drinking Water Act, this federal law, um, in the last three years, the report found. And, you know, we're talking 378 water systems in the state of West Virginia out of about 448. So a pretty big percentage of water systems here in West Virginia have faced some problems. Um, and, and that's for a lot of reasons, you know, population bases are shrinking. These are small systems, often rural systems. They're aging and federal investment in water infrastructure is definitely been decreasing over the last few decades. Um, and this is something that Chairman Lane also spoke to. Here's Lane again. A lot of them are the boards are part-time boards, uh, the systems are small, the systems are run by local entity, lo local people who have a reluctance to ask for rate increases, and without adequate revenue, it is very difficult to keep up on the testing that needs to be done for water, keeping the infrastructure uh, repaired, and and a lot of times hiring people to run these systems. And so that is one of the big problems. And I think with an outside entity like the PSC coming in, looking at the system, working with them, 
trying to come up with a long-term plan. It'll be, it will result in good water for hopefully all of West Virginia. So one system that came up during debate um, in this bill is Payton City. That's a, a small community in the northern part of West Virginia. Right now, residents there, their water is contaminated with three times the legal limit of a chemical called PCE. Um, that's commonly used in dry cleaning operations. And I visited Payton City, and there's a lot of concern from residents about how long they've been exposed to this chemical. Currently, the city does have an emergency grant that's going to help them clean up the current level of contamination, but their aquifer is contaminated. And so one thing that we wanted to ask Chairwoman Lane is that if the bill passes, is Payton City one of the communities that would be a candidate? Here she is again. It's hard to tell. Right now, what I know about Payton City is that there are some issues with uh, chemicals in the water and the EPA is working with the, uh, the local people and I know that that Payton City has a project that's going to start next week I think that is supposed to take care of the underlying chemical problem in the water and I am hopeful that that will work but in the meantime our staff will be reaching out to Payton City to see if there's anything that we can do at the Public Service Commission to help them with their issues. Brittany, in the minute or so that we have left, what, uh, what environmental uh, legislation bills have, have been stalled to, at this point? Yeah, I mean, we still have a few, a few, a few more days left in this session, but there has been a lot of things that have sort of not made it quite through the mark. That includes, as I mentioned earlier, some solar bills that would allow third-party solar, rooftop solar, more easily in West Virginia. There's also been some other solar bills that would allow solar development on abandoned mine lands. And notably related to drinking water, there was the Clean Drinking Water Act of 2020 that Democrats were really pushing that would regulate PFAS chemicals. That's the type of chemical that DuPont with its C8 contamination released into the Ohio River for decades. And that was um, that bill so far, both in the House and the Senate, has not gotten on any committee agenda. Anything that um, has, has surprised you about uh, the, the, the bills and the process um, the input that you've gotten um, uh, on, on any of the bills that we've been reporting on. Yeah, I mean, I think the solar bill is a really big step here in West Virginia. Um, you know, I, I think early when this passed the Senate, we heard some testimony to the effect of this might be the first time that um, a coal a bill like this has come onto the Senate floor and, and introduced by a coal miner um, or spoken in favor of by a coal miner. That was uh, Senator Randy Smith. Exactly. Yes. So definitely, definitely a big step. All right. Brittany Patterson, Emily Allen, thank you both for joining me this evening. Thanks. Next, the long-running PAGE program at the Capitol that's been teaching students about the legislative process and developing leaders for many years. Randy Yowie reports. Over on the House side, before the constant delivery of messages, drinks, and snacks to delegates can begin, there's page and parent check-in, then orientation. Um, I'm going to be taking you guys on a little tour so we know exactly where to go, what to do. Like I said, it's really easy. Every day of the session, a couple dozen different students, ages 12 to 18, from schools throughout the state, find out where those drinks and snacks are kept. You will come right up the chairs, right along the front, you will come to the front of their desk 
and you're going to say, delegate, how may I help you? And they learn how the delegate paging system works. We were in class and then they pulled us because they thought we were good leaders. Page leaders tell these young leaders-to-be that they can engage with the delegates in this learning experience and to realize that pages are an important part of the legislative process. The kids can then take the knowledge that they've learned and the experience and share that with their other classmates. I'm excited because it's my first time here and I get to learn about how the government works and stuff like that. To be honest, it was, it was kind of overwhelming. I'm sure you can still see it on the kids' faces today. It, I remember getting coffee and copies and things like that. Wayne County Delegate Robert Thompson says his experience as an 8th grade Senate page was a springboard to his future. Prep work not lost on these young people here in 2020. I feel like we should learn about government because it's our future jobs and the government is a big part of where we live and about our everyday life so I feel like we should learn more about it and that we should be a part of it. I was already interested in history and things like that, but coming up here to get to see the Capitol and being involved, it just really enforced, reinforced that. And I'd always wanted to come back ever since, and that kind of it helped encourage me to run for office later on. And I had to ask, with all this scurrying, is there certain page footwear recommended? Nope, just page rule number one, don't run. So as long as they're not running, I think they could wear any kind of shoes they want. Tomorrow a new group of pages will come in with their own shoe styles stepping toward their futures. I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. Tomorrow on the Legislature Today, a special report and follow-up conversation on broadband expansion in West Virginia. I'm Suzanne Higgins for everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thanks for joining us. Have a great evening.